0: At the end of the day, it is entrenched power in the form of fossil fuel companies, bigger industrial agricultural corporations, individuals with a, with a high carbon intense lifestyle, right? That consciously or unconsciously kind of protect the status quo. So it is a power struggle and we have to build counter power, a society-wide mobilization, you know, the most inclusive social movement, the biggest social movement in history, right? Because if there's no struggle. There is no progress, right? The eight-hour workday, the weekend, civil rights, women's rights, the bike infrastructure in the Netherlands, yeah? outcomes of social struggle.
1: Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Fabian de Blander. Fabian is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Dynamics at the University of Amsterdam. He investigates issues surrounding the energy transition and the climate and ecological crises from a theoretical and practical perspective. Fabian is also heavily involved in Scientist Rebellion, the offshoot of Extinction Rebellion that has sprung up encouraging academics around the world to get involved in nonviolent civil disobedience. Scientist Rebellion is the basis upon which Fabian and I got in touch to have this conversation and it is a really fascinating one. We have a long back and forth around action, uh, nonviolence versus sabotage, hope versus denial, tipping points of social changes and power. Where does power lie? How much is power willing to give up? And should we recognize that power is not willing to come to the table to negotiate? I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Fabian, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Richie.
1: My first question for you is, why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, there are two huge questions and, and I think there are many, many layers to them. So maybe let's start with, with unpicking this notion of crisis. And one, one thing I like is this planetary boundaries framework that Earth system scientists have proposed and planetary boundaries are, are kind of quantifying global thresholds of key Earth system processes that, you know, when we transgress them, we, we put ourselves out of the safe operating space for humanity. And, you know, there's, that has been proposed in 2019. There was an update in 2015, and there was a recent update in 2023. And so currently we're breaking six out of those planetary boundaries. This is climate change, of course. This is uh, biodiversity loss. In terms of the extinction rates, we're actually at the sixth mass extinction, human cost. Oh, we're we in have- it? Yeah, in terms of levels, right, we, 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 we haven't reached it because past mass extinctions were at least like 75% of all species being dead. But in terms of the rates of extinction, we're wow. in sixth mass extinction. Okay. There's, there's chemical pollution. You have, you know, Japanese researchers finding microplastics in clouds. You have PFAS, right, these forever chemicals that are in the water and soil. Actually, here in Amsterdam, when I drink water, I'm ingesting too much PFAS. Right? I'm being poisoned, you probably as well, in the UK. There is, um, you know, land system change, deforestation, there's overshooting of these nitrogen and phosphorus cycles of the earth because of industrial agriculture, fertilizers, there's fresh water change. So it's really really a full-scale assault on the natural world. It's not only climate breakdown or ecological breakdown, it's really earth system breakdown. And, you know, why why do we face earth system breakdown? And again, there can be many answers given, but I think two elements are, are key. One is... Really, the economic system built around capital accumulation, right, and perpetual growth, rather than servicing human needs. So, for example, what is good for human needs but not profitable doesn't get done, right? You have uh, drug development in Africa, neglected tropical diseases. There's no market for them, so they don't get developed. At the same time, you have what is profitable yet harmful uh, just being continued, right? You saw that. I mean, you saw that destroying. It's incredibly profitable, right? We had the energy crisis 2022, all the oil majors making tens of billions of profits, right? And then downscaling the renewable investments. Shell spent seven and a half times more uh, for sh- share, be- share buybacks, right? For their shareholders, than on renewable investments. And the CEO said, you know and I'm quoting, he said in February, something like, yo, we, we want to go for lower and lower carbon, but it has to be profitable, yeah. And, and there's this fundamental contradiction in the economic system. And these companies, of course, have become incredibly powerful and they have unduly influenced the decision-making process and the political process, right? I mean, Shell, Total, Exxon have known at least since the seventies that their product is causing climate change. Exxon made very precise predictions, quantitative predictions, and yet they have poisoned the public debate, right? They have funded disinformation, denial. And I think, you know, when all is being said and done, the people who've run, are running these corporations probably have committed the greatest crime in, in human history. And, you know, this system also creates, you know, needs and, and material wants that are also unsustainable, right? We want bigger houses, we want bigger cars. There's all these advertisements. The IEA a couple of years ago put out a, a, a report saying that SUVs, SUVs were the second biggest cause in the rise of emissions, there yeah? Why do you need an SUV, right? And these industries that are destroying the earth are, are heavily subsidized, right? Fossil fuels, the IMF said, get around 1.3 trillion in explicit subsidies. About 90% of the $550 billion or so we give to farmers is harmful, it's for industrial beef, for milk and dairy. And aviation is scandalously cheap compared to taking the train, right? And, you know, we think about the state and the public sectors as usually being opposite of the private sector and corporations. But when we look at historic development and Fabian Scheidler has really this wonderful book that I highly recommend, it's called The End of the Mega Machine. And he kind of shows that, you know, the modern state and, and institutions of capital accumulation, banks and corporations really co-evolved over the last 500 years. You know, the state started out with this heavy military apparatus. Most of the expenses were, were for the military. And uh, uh, they didn't have money to pay for all that. So they went to the banks, the merchants to get these loans and then funded, you know, colonialism, exploitation. And then with the fruits of those exportations, paid back uh, um, um, with interest to those capital uh, um, uh, institutions. And you have, you know, uh, I mean, Amit, of course, talks about this nice thing, the Nutmeg's curse, right? You have the the Banda Islands. You have the Dutch East India Company and the Dutch state going in there, you know, uh, uh, slaughtering them. To get a monopoly on, on, on the nutmeg for the spice trade, earning a lot of wealth. And this kind of violence is only, you know, you can only justify this with some kind of ideology, some kind of mythology, you know, of superiority, you know, of, 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 of you know, the, the Western religions, the Western values being kind of better than what these uh, barbaric outsiders have, right? These indigenous peoples, right? And. That kind of, I think, is the second element to why we're in this crisis, is a view that, you know, cheapens nature, treats nature as something that is inert, as, as a resource that we can just deplete, uh, um, as something to dominate, right? As an externality that is not priced in, right? I mean, if if we would give, if, if, you know, if we had this connection, I think, as indigenous peoples have with the land and nature, you you, you wouldn't be able to just cut down trees on the scale that we're doing or destroy these, these ecosystems at the rate we're doing. So I think these these are kind of uh, two elements to the answer of, of of why we're in this crisis. And then the question is, well, well, what can we do about it? And I think this this system, right, that what what Fabian Schadler calls the mega machine, will end. Yeah. I mean, the internal contradictions are just too severe for to to persist further. But the question is, well, how will it end? Right? Will it end? violently with, you know, extreme climate change, with uh, rising inequality, with fascism, right, with wars over resources, with mass migration, with venture collapse, right, or will we be able to end it before it ends yeah. us? And, and if we look at these planetary these boundaries, we, we, we see that some issues are arguably more urgent than others. And so I've been focusing more on, on climate change. And, and if you just look at, say, the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees, 50% chance to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. It's about 230 gigatons of CO2. Yeah. And that would exhaust at current emissions levels at uh, six, in six years, right? So there's really, there's really, because we have left it so late, there's really a, 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 a clock associated with the struggle that past struggles didn't have. And so we really need to shift into emergency mode to end fossil fuels, to end industrial agriculture, at the same time doing so in a manner that is transformative, right? That doesn't reproduce structures of oppression, and domination that we had in the past, right? The renewable energy be uh, 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 decentralized, democratized, moving it out of the profit motive, have the citizens' assemblies, right, to to put forward a more deliberative uh, uh, version of democracy rather right? than representative view. And, you know, these are big picture things, right? But as individuals, there's, um, there's a nice way, I think, to view this. Christian Nielsen, who was, a, who was a collaborator of mine, and he wrote this paper in Nature Energy 2021, viewed, you know, we have a kind of different roles we play. Right, we, we have consumers, we can act as consumers, we can act as investors or people who donate to organizations, uh, as role models in our communities and organizations, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's okay, it's good if you don't you know eat meat, but if you can shift your organization to a vegetarian cafeteria, it's much more important. And I think what's critical... Uh, what's most critical is, is to engage in collective action, right? Because we have to realize that what, and, and there was this nice paper also by Kevin Anderson and Ian Stollard and mm-hmm. others on you know, three decades of climate mitigation, why we fail to prevent the emissions curve. And, and they basically looked at this uh, with an interdisciplinary team of researchers through various lenses and they said, look, at the end of the day, it is uh, 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 entrenched power in the form of fossil fuel companies, bigger industrial agricultural corporations. Individuals with a, with a high carbon intense lifestyle, right? That consciously or unconsciously kind of protect the status quo. So it is a power struggle and we have to build counter power, right, society-wide mobilization. You know, the most inclusive social movement, the biggest social movement in history, right? Because if there's no struggle, there is no progress, right? The eight-hour workday, the weekend, civil rights, women's rights, the bike infrastructure in the Netherlands, yeah. outcomes of social struggle. And one tool there is, I think, uh, civil disobedience, right? right? To, to put your body on the line, to disrupt business as usual, to create dilemmas for those in power. Yeah. You have to be, I think you have to be annoying to save the world. Yeah. And, and to compel the people in power to act uh, and to shift into emergency mode, to reorient these priorities and, and part of the work I'm doing is, is with scientist rebellion, right? As one pillar of support of, of society, the academic community and getting them more engaged and mobilized in acts of civil disobedience or other types of climate action, right? I mean, if you can't do civil disobedience, that's perfectly fine. I mean, there's so many roles in the struggle in the climate movement um, that, that could benefit from whatever skills these people have doesn't necessarily need to be to go onto the street, right? So I think uh, this was a long answer, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but this was a big question as well. So i, I leave yeah. it at that.
1: No, that was a really, really great answer. So to summarize, are the same ideologies which enabled the, the creation of such an exploitative and extractive economic system have then driven Um, that extraction and exploitation to the point where we are pushing our planet over uh, six, breaking six of its boundaries into very, very dangerous sort of tipping zones that could cause uh, cascading impacts, which are sort of irreversible. That's sort of what these tipping points are, right? Uh, We could change the planet's climate and thus its ecosystems forever. Um, And for the rate of extinction, we are in now this sixth mass extinction event. I didn't know that. Um, and this is all also been sort of facilitated by uh, relationships between fossil fuel companies, between industrial agriculture, essentially between corporations and governments. Um, and, you know, those, how did you put it? Uh, certain individuals, powerful individuals who may or may not know what they're doing. Uh, sure, also, let's say by like a ruling class um, who have been in the driver's seat whilst we are heading towards the cliff um there's one thing that, and also then obviously uh what can we do civil di- civil disobedience there's this thing you said at the end you know can about compelling power to act at what point do we uh say that power cannot be compelled to act effectively i think this is now the question that we're all facing right it's been the hottest july uh, the july was the hottest month on record it was the hottest august uh ever hottest september ever we're at one point eight degrees above pre-industrial temperatures because of El Nino as well. Um, at what point do we agree oh and you know global fossil fuel consumption is at an all-time high. At what point do we understand or do we agree that uh, power cannot be compelled to act because actually the biggest state companies in the world are state owned? The biggest fossil fuel companies in the world, sorry, are state-owned governments, are the biggest producers and consumers of fossil fuels. That's why they cannot bring this problem under control. They are driving the problem. To compel power to act would be to compel power to understand that its hegemony, that its dominance is over, that it's time Mm. for a new world order. That, yeah, Mm. it's going to be China because, my God, if there's one country that's seen this problem coming a mile off and done something about it, it's been China. I mean, um. And we'll get into let's get into all the nitty-gritties of these of these um of the different forms of civil dis- disobedience and all the different um movements that we have seen uh throughout human history. But yeah, can you speak to that? At what point do we agree that power cannot be compelled to act?
0: Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question. Um maybe two things. I mean, first and this was one of Gandhi's insight, right, that, 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 that oppression always on some level requires the consent of the oppressed. And, you know, he, 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 he combined his, his notion of passive resistance with, with, uh, um, to, to form like civil resistance, right? You, you, you passively obey laws, you boycott them because when you become ungovernable at scale, you know, then those who govern need to give in right mm. I mean just just imagine here we have these protests on the r twelve in in The Hague in the Netherlands, I think one of the most interesting campaigns in in Europe right now, where I think at a high time we well, are at least twenty thousand, twenty five thousand on the street right on a Saturday now suppose this would be two million right, and they wouldn't leave right i mean there is there is in at least in in, 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 in in a democracy, however broken it is now, in our, in our in our Western world, I think if you become ungovernable at scale, there is no, there's no, there's nothing that, that, that those in power can, can do here. Right. But then the question is, is that pathway available to us, right? Can we mobilize enough people to engage in collective action, to engage in civil resistance, to become ungovernable at scale, right? And I think that's an, that's an open question. But that's at least from the movement that I've kind of looked at. That's part of the theory of change, right? You mobilize enough people, engage in massive disobedience. You, you put so much pressure on the system that they have to give in. Now, and ideally, you know, you, again, you, you put transformative solutions forward, like citizens' assemblies, right? I mean, I think it's an ingenious move from Extinction Rebellion to say, we don't have the policy solutions. We let a representative group of people decide. Uh, Right. And, and you have had that in the UK, right? As you know, in France, in Ireland, in Austria, and these citizens' assemblies come up with much more progressive uh, policy proposals than the governing parties, right? Then the question is, well, can those be uh, put into law, right? And that hasn't happened so far. But I think if you become really enormous at scale with various pillars of support, right? With lawyers, with the churches, with the academics, I think. I think... I think it's possible. Oh, uh, I, I don't think we have just, we haven't tried hard enough to get there. Um, because okay. if, yeah, maybe you respond to that because I also have not thought, but yeah.
1: I mean, let me just push back on it um, because the The climate campaign, Extinction Rebellion, was the fastest growing civil rights movement essentially in the history of mankind. From one year to the next, it was present in like, it had local chapters in about 50 different countries. I think that's up to 100 and something around the world. There has never been anything like it. Never in the history of social progress has there been anything like it. It's a phenomenal movement and and the people behind it deserve a huge, huge amount of credit. But I think it just goes to show that this is sort of the first crisis, social crises that we are facing that is so interlinked with the very fabric of what makes this mega machine run that actually, like all of the fights that have been won along the way were very particularly contextualized as well, right? Like people really like to reference Gandhi and the nonviolent thing. Well, he was also up against the British Empire that was a bit tired and was well aware and then you need to start using soft power instead of hard power and I'd figure out that probably, you know, you could colonize economically just as well as you could with a military. You know, they yeah. had another plan ready to slip into yeah. place. You know, it wasn't like they just went, oh, gosh, yeah, no, that's, um, oh, God, exploiting people, racism, terrible, how awful of us, of course we'll retreat. No, they had something else ready to go and ready to be deployed. The thing with what um, Extinction Rebellion and Just Up Oil and what all of these groups are now demanding that makes it much more difficult to give in to the demands that, as opposed to sort of a, a niche, let's say, of like leftist politics. It's demanding, you know, the deconstruction of the entire system. It's demanding we find a different fuel. And because fossil fuels are so energy dense and so cheap to sort of get your hands on, um, there will never be another fuel like it. The system cannot run on anything else. Can't run on renewables in the same way. um. And so that's why power is so incapable of facing up to these, not just sort of social demands, but like scientific truths as well. I mean, it would demand the whole thing kind of
0: coming, crumbling. So the question is, I I think fundamentally, right? We have to, we have to end the mega machine, right? We have to create a system that is not built on profit on exploitation and So so on. But, but that is a, that is a, that is a struggle there is not one of two decades or three decades or four decades right that's really uh i mean just looking at how the system developed it also took centuries right mm-hmm. so this is really a transformation that i mean we won't see in my lifetime right i'm i'm actually pretty you confident think? yeah i think i think we can we can have uh, you know hints of it right and certain elements to it um but i think there's just a there's just a lot to do there right On a shorter timescale, right, when we, when we talk about climate breakdown, right, when we I mean, there we could see in my lifetime, the collapse of civilization because of it, right.
1: Mm.
0: Now it is possible to transition to a 100% renewable energy system, right? It's just, it's just possible, Right. right? So there are solutions out there that we can advocate and push for, um, that, you know, that might not usher in this utopia. But but uh, certainly an improvement of the current state. So, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I'm a bit, you know, I see, you know, where we are and ideally where we where we need to be. Right? There's this enormous gap, and we we there's it, it's too much even to just have in in mind, right? Because it just paralyzes mm-hmm. you. I mean, if you really think about it, you're like, okay, I mean, the mega machine is just going to end us, right? Yeah. But we can have local struggles and, and, and winning certain elements that can then kind of inspire uh, tipping processes, social tipping processes, change processes that then trickle outwards, right? Mm. So, I mean, we probably see two degrees of heating, right? But yeah. two degrees of heating can, uh, we we can build a society, we can build communities, we can prepare for that in a way that would still not be a terrible life, right? So, So, I think. I guess, yeah. Th- there's a level of um, realism or pragmatism in terms of what we can do, what we can't do, while still having the goal in mind, right? So I- I'm not sure we 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 should throw our, uh, you know arms up in the air and say this is too big of a problem, right? Oh, but God, re- yeah, to to kind of start locally and see what we can do. Uh, but maybe I'm misunderstanding your point also.
1: Oh yeah my point is definitely not to throw our hands up in the air and do nothing. Um I suppose my point is about changing tactics.
0: So yeah. I mean what, what what would you what would you what would you suggest?
1: I mean I'm a big fan of um sabotage against property. Right. You know what book I've read? I yeah, 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 do yeah. know which book I've read. <laughs>
0: Everybody has read that book. Yeah, Everyone yeah, watched yeah. the movie. You say it's a good movie. No. Did you? I haven't yeah, seen I it yet. Ah, I, I can recommend it.
1: Would you recommend it for the very clear instructions that are laid out in the movie, or for the There, story? there,
0: there are no clear instructions. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I, it's interesting, right? Because because it is indeed a, a, a different tactic, right? You you and it reminds me of this other book which I which I can recommend called "The Levers of Power" by, by um, I think Kevin Schwartz and a bunch of others, and they basically say, well, quoting John Dewey, you know, politics is just a shadow of big business casts on society. You know, at the end of the day, it's big corporations that are running the show. And they, I mean, they are scholars, they are, they are really social scientists and they analyze the Obama era, I think on healthcare and climate and one other topic. And they just show how big corporations are influencing the, the decision-making process, not only through lobbying, but also through capital strikes. They're kind mm-hmm. of saying, hey, I'm not going to invest there unless you give me these kind of things, right? And you see it with companies in the US uh, uh, having cities, you know, kind of uh, uh, fight for, for their headquarters being situated there, right? But yeah. so this is the kind of dynamics. But from that, from that point of view, you would actually say, hey, it's completely infeasible to make uh, demands to the government, right? Because they are just uh, just a shadow of big business, right? And what you should actually do is compel big business to um, to shift gears, which could then influence the policy making process. So they give this example. I think there was a campaign, I forget exactly which one, but maybe Birmingham and the civil rights where where actually they put a lot of pressure on businesses because the business would, would lose money by, you know, them protesting there. And then the businesses talked to the politics and said, Hey, you need to advance civil rights because we, we are losing all these customers, right? Now. The problem here, I think, with this analysis is that the fossil fuel industry has to die, you know, and 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 that's quite a different situation, right? Because because they won't, you won't shift their their priorities to say to the government, okay, let's abandon fossil subsidies, let's not explore oil and gas, because fundamentally, that is their proposition, right? Yeah. Um. So so that's kind of. Um, a, I think that's different to, to to past cases. And then you could say, well, maybe maybe that doesn't work, but maybe just sabotaging you know, all this LNG infrastructure and oil infrastructure could, I don't know, create enough uh, damage uh, uh, that the oil industry uh, stops uh, expanding, right? But I, I think that's also not a feasible um, theory of change because it has, at the end of the day, I think it has to be some form of state power, you know, that says, okay, we're shifting to emergency and we're doing disambition That
1: I just don't know what it would take. You know, there were sort of anecdotes. That's the wrong word, but... The tale that we told ourselves last summer in Europe was like, okay, yeah, no, th- 33 million people displaced in Pakistan, and that's terrible. So for, for the people who get it, for the people who are on site, that's terrible. Okay, governments aren't doing anything. May- when, it, when it hits Europe, when it reaches our shores, that's, that'll be the moment that'll kick them into action. Yeah. We saw giant hailstorms in Italy in July uh Greece, huge parts of Greece flooded and on fire at the same time. It, entire islands evacuated, entire land lost, villages gone, ten thousand carcasses of rotting livestock um in one in one valley. I mean it's it's not nothing's happening. Just before we hit record, you know, we were talking about the fact that as Sunak is expanding, you know, he's going ahead with Rosebank. Uh, the United States is going ahead. They're building like 20 new LNG terminals around their coastlines, all of which are going to be uh, have more emissions than um, Willow, the, the big oil field that took a lot of attention. Yeah. You know, it's oil, this whole thing about peak oil, peak oil 2008, we're probably running out of oil in some way. At least the EROI, energy return on investment, is going to be too high because drilling down to get the shale stuff, which is just lower quality, it's not going to make more sense. But if you speak to people in the fossil fuel industry, they're like, yeah, 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 oil's kind of, eh. that's probably going to sort itself out as a problem. But we yeah, have enough yes. coal for 300 years. We've got enough gas for 250 years. Like that's, <laughs> we're not going to stop using the stuff yeah. when it's there. Um, and because 90% of fossil fuel production is done in the name of states, state-owned companies, not the oil majors, this lifeblood that courses through the veins of the mega machine is being pumped by states. And so this idea that maybe a state power will come around and do something, I just don't think that that's a sort of feasible option anymore. Because you know what, there are great ideas. There's great ideas in Latin America. There's great ideas in the Pacific. There are nation states that are feeling the impact of climate change first and would like this to stop. and Because also they understand that stopping fossil fuels essentially puts a wrench in colonialism and extraction and all of these Mm. things as well and global capitalism. But they're not listened to. They're not helped. They're not given a voice. They're barely given a vote. I just... I just fear that after sort of like... How do I put this? After the peace years, post-World War II, in which sort of, you know, the boomers, the people in charge and us, their offspring, <laughs> in this part of the world have never known such peace. It's, it's been a peaceful time, even though it's been diff- still difficult and even though it's certainly not been peaceful for very many minorities. But on the whole, um, the struggle has progressed uh, pretty civilly. And it's like we're kind of yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. we don't have the teeth and the claws for this next
0: bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we have continuous debates about sabotage, right? And 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 I think you know there was an in the, Indigland the action last month or so at Rügen, right? They built this LNG terminal, and in the action consensus, they also said, look, if some people just want to sabotage. That's totally fine, right? In the end, I believe it didn't happen. Um, but you could, you you could certainly make a case. I mean, Marlon makes a quite a convincing case, right? Yeah. Uh, um, that 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 is that that certainly, if you talk about being the investment risk, like in the Gelenda, you know, disrupting these things. If you're there for a day, I mean, you're not doing much, right? But but if you if you just destroy the machine, right, and sabotage it in a way that it takes more time to to build out then then you're certainly a bigger disruption, right? But I don't think we should, I don't think we should, um, well, not fool ourselves, but I think that that, I mean, would that be sufficient? Why would that be sufficient? Like would that, I mean, certainly, certainly the, the. on one level, there was actually, there's a great podcast. I can, I can, I can highly recommend it of somebody who's done a lot of sabotage. Has really looked into it and he reviewed Marl's book. And he also was like a little bit well. Uh, uh, on some level, you know, if you sabotage, then you've less supply. I mean, probably you don't make much of a dent, but you've less supply. The price goes up, right? The dynamics is such that actually they make more profit. Mm. So, so I, I I I I wouldn't say oh we've tried everything now with 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 pushing state actors, and now we should do sabotage, and then it's going to be fine. right? Mm. but I I, I certainly mm. I. I well, I don't want to incriminate myself, but yeah. I, I can understand why some people will feel the need to engage in sabotage, right? Um, and it is interesting because we are not as a climate movement, certainly in Europe, there's a, there's a lack of skill also to do these things. Right. Mm. I mean, you have Greenpeace to do these crazy actions on oil rigs and so on. Right. But if you look at the, if you look at the, 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 the average scientist rebellion person, I mean, it's an academic, mm. right? Or extensionalism, or, you know, students, young people. You know, there's. I, I guess there's also just lack of skill to do this at scale. Yeah. So, um, so on some level, I think there's actually a need to, again, I don't want to incriminate myself, but but train uh, uh, these things and also think about how how do we fight in a world on fire because we know it's getting worse. But even if we do everything, we're gonna reach 1.5 in the early 20s right so it's going to be, there's going to be you know more more impacts for reward, more migration right and how do we how do we act as a climate movement in in that ever worsening atmosphere um, i don't think this is being being really strategized at the yeah. level that, that will be necessary
1: yeah 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 i agree um I wonder how much it there is a kind of a disbelief as well in the face of it all. Like I've been doing this work for many years and myself personally, it wasn't until I came back from a conference recently and, you know, got the train all the bloody way there because that's what you do. Um, and so it was a long journey back and i was exhausted and and i'd I'd, you know spent the weekend with capitalists and venture capitalists and them all sort of talking about how green tech is going to save us and um i spent a lot of my weekend yelling at them and i burst into tears when i walked through my front door and just really felt the grief of it for the first time and i think i'd been sort of in a suspended state of disbelief up until that moment like surely not surely something will come along someone will come along we'll figure it out there will be a social tipping point yada 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 and like i think finally getting a glimpse at because like as you say this big picture is really complex but getting enough glimpses really at like the, the 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 valves of the mechanical heart of this thing the the fact that fossil fuels are it's lifeblood the way that that is connected to government power and western hegemony and the way that's connected to the financial system and corporations and like it, it just it's not something that can just be um substituted for renewables for example because i mean you do that and you essentially guarantee china coming out as the world's top power well that's because western we, we... companies don't want to do yeah. western countries
0: gone. I, yeah, I mean, we've, we've certainly uh, uh, lost uh, uh, a lot, right? I mean, Germany kicked off kind of the renewable and energy revolution with these feed-in terrorists and then at some point just decided to discontinue them, handing it over to China, right? Yeah. But you have things like the in- Inflation Reduction Act that are ca- trying to stimulate right, yeah. green industries again, right? And, and and that's an interesting dynamic because, because then, of course, these green uh, uh, technology companies are in cahoots. Yeah, or in in fighting with the fossil fuel industry, right? So one theory of change could be, well, let let actually let let capital eat another part of capital. Yeah. Right? Um. Um. But yeah, I I agree with you that I think we're all in deny, in denial on some level, right? Because this is just too. I mean, if you really sit down and just let it in, I I don't think you would be capable of getting anything done anymore, and. What crystallized it for me again was in June. Actually, I had a heat exhaustion. You know, I was like, I was a moving house, and it was like I know, thirty-three degrees or so. And I, I skipped lunch, and then I was just feeling terribly. You know, I had to vomit, and for four days I was lying in bed. You know, and oh, wow. I was like, wow, this is, uh, uh, this is. I mean, of course, that was just part of it. it was all the stupidity. You know? I should have eaten. I should have drank more, right? But, but I. This was not my bingo card, right? And then I learned. I learned about this PFAS business, which wasn't on my agenda so much. I'm not sure what it is on yours, but the dynamics that were similar, right? DuPont uh, invented this, this these forever chemicals, so Teflon, right? And this non sticking uh, material in the forties and then throughout the sixties and seventies realized, oh, actually this is cancer causing, you know, our employees are dying and they were hiding this fact, you know, and, and, and only later of you know, the 2000s or so, it, it kind of came out, right? And they've lied to the public about it. And now they're everywhere. They're everywhere. There was a, 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 a press release from the REVM, which is our public health institute, saying, hey, Dutch people ingest too much PFAS through food and drink. You should diversify your diet to decrease uh, the risk of ingesting too much, you know? And it's like, I, I just realized again, okay, it is really poor on earth system breakdown, you know, it's not mm-hmm. only fossil fuels, but it's always mm-hmm. where there's this profit motive and this lying to the public, it's just it's just bad things happen. And indeed, I mean, it's this mega machine that is almost impossible to attack, right? But 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 what what else is there, right? I mean, we, we have to do, you know, everything we can as strategically as we care, right?
1: Absolutely. But by its nature, it should be—it should be in a way, in one way—and let me run with this thought to see where we end up. But it should be easy to attack in some ways because we know that it's not resilient. We know that, like the the globalization agenda, is part of the reason that everything is breaking down because resilient as uh, complex systems are, are diverse, and this global system that we have is not diverse whatsoever. Um, and that's one of the reasons that it, you know our supply chains are so fragile. It's one of the reasons our food systems are so vulnerable to shock, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's an incredibly complex system that is very, very difficult to understand. But the nature of its complexity, i.e. its lack of diversity, should make it. that It is actually, there must be some levers that can be pulled by the general public to trigger a sequence of events because they didn't build it for resilience. It wasn't this system. I mean, nobody built this system. You know, this system kind of built itself. But it wasn't, it's not been built for diversity it's not been built for resilience it's not been built to last it's not been built to serve people it's been built for efficiency it's been built for maximization of profit um and it's been built to cut corners and cut costs like it's mm-hmm. it's fundamentally fragile in its nature mm-hmm. there must be i've got a friend who talks about um the port on the death star mm-hmm. you know she's like well just there's gotta be there'll be a there'll be a thing there will be a thing that or maybe a couple of things, maybe a couple of ports in the Death Star, by its nature, it's fragile. It must be able to be <sighs> stopped.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, one thing, I mean, you in the Netherlands, right, we have this strong campaign against fossil subsidies, right? Mm. I mean, this is one of the, 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 the first thing you should do is just stop with the things that are destroying the Earth, right? You don't want to finance them. And that's a that's a, that's I think that's winnable here. That's really winnable. I mean, now we, we spend around forty million on fossil fuel subsidy, forty billion on fossil fuel subsidies in the Netherlands, and the plan is to spend on climate thirty billion until twenty
1: thirty. Yeah, it's, it's insane,
0: and and it's it's companies like Tata Steel, you know, steel industry, uh, uh, um, Shell, who paying hundred times less in taxes, you know. Yeah like they 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 use forty percent of the electricity, but only pay one percent of the, of the of the taxes so so you know if we win that right, that will already be progress right and that will that will potentially have effect on okay now suddenly some part of the renewable sector can compete better with 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 fossil fuels and so on and so forth right and then you can have certain dynamics that will help further right or you you, you just really push for. A citizens' Assembly, right? That's, I think, a transformative uh, policy, right? I mean, I think there are levels to play with and to push for, but it's just that we you, that the push needs to be harder. I mean, I, I I do believe we can enforce a few subsidies if there are a million people on the street. I mean, what what are you going to do? You know, like there's no, you don't have a democratic mandate to to. I mean, in the UK it's different because that's basically, I mean, that's really, uh, I mean, Tsunak sort of wasn't elected, right? I mean, so there's yeah. a, there's, a, there's 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 Trouble is there, and then maybe you need to adopt the strategy, right? But in the neurons I think this is this is winnable. Um, yeah, yeah, I I think it's really a, a problem of scale, and this is what is actually mind-boggling. It's actually mind-boggling because because you know I I, I spent the pandemic. Luckily, I, I was on an island. I had, a, I had an Italian girlfriend, and we spent it there. And we, I dug into the, the climate science and really became like over months. I realized okay, it's actually. It orders of magnitude worse than I thought, you know. And then I had this kind of inside transformation and then I went back to Amsterdam to civilization. I talked to people, to my academics and said like, okay, guys, guys, you know, this is the greatest emergency we have ever faced, you know. And then you see professors and other people saying like, yeah, but it's too big, you know, you can't really do anything about it. And it's like, it's so complicated, you know. And you realize, and you're you like, I mean, this was really like, I was like, you know, I was like, like, and and I think, and I think uh, if we get more people mobilized, you know, then things can, can start happening. And we're not, we're not, uh, we're not mobilized. I mean, give this, I give these direct action trainings, right? And I talk for half an hour about the climate and, and, and the scale of the emergency and so on. And people come here, you know, and they say, you know, I, I haven't quite understood, you know, the urgency and the scale of the problem, right? And these are people who are interested. And if you just talk, the aver- average person on the street, they are not, they they are not, they I don't think are getting it to the to the to the degree that it is necessary. So so there is um there is a there is a, some kind of information problem, still, right? I mean, you have these Eurobarometer survey results and people say, oh, climate is one of the biggest biggest uh, issues and so on and so forth. But they they're not on the street, right? So there is a mismatch here. They need to be on the street. They need to realize that you know. Nobody is coming to save us. Nobody is coming to save us and we have to get active. And there is something that we haven't learned. You know, I never had to struggle for anything. You know I mean? I'm a deeply privileged person from the global north. I never had to struggle for anything, right? So we haven't learned, we haven't learned how to engage in collective action, right? So there's a learning process that we have to, have to go through. And, but, but I think if we, if we manage that, we can really, really change the course. I, I I this is I yeah, this is a fundamental belief I have. Maybe it's a little bit of opium but I think if we scale this up, yes if we things can can really start shifting.
1: I agree with you. I think that I do not think that it's um locked in and certain. I mean, some things are like one point five, probably even two. Um I think that huge amounts of civil action can change the course of history. Um I believe that The civil disobedience that we are seeing is fundamentally scalable, especially when it's nonviolent and especially in nations like Holland, where the police, you know, sort of given up (laughs) and given up and gone home, been like, right, okay, yeah. And it's getting good press coverage. There are certain things, though, that I think we need to be as 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 members of the public that are engaged in this work that we need to be more honest about it. like the fact that the press isn't on our side because that's another node in yep. sort of how yeah, yeah, yeah. the elite maintain yep. um, their position and yep. um, the fact that nobody is coming to save us so it is very likely that actually one million people on the streets maybe 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 you could then say oh you don't have a democratic mandate but it's not about democracy. Fossil fuels running this system is not about democracy because it's fundamentally not a democratic system. I think that there are lots of, like there are so many illusions that are sort of tacked on to like social life in the global north that mean that we accept certain processes as they are. And I think that's what's really interesting about um, the ac- climate action that we're seeing around the world. It really is like democracy is coming up against reality. Mm which is we don't have a way to not use these fuels if we want to maintain our global position. So we're just going to ignore the biggest global call for change in the history of humankind, you know? So I just think it's also being aware of, like, if we're asking people to to join, which we should be, like, first of all, action needs to be diverse because that's how you make it resilient. It needs to be so many people doing lots and lots and lots of different things. There also needs to be an awareness of like, okay, like it's like, it's like, do you know what? It's like being in a bad relationship. All right. Mm -hmm. Like you always need to have your boundary of like, this is what I'm willing. Like when it reaches this point, this is where I, when I leave. And you make that like as objectively and kind of early on as possible. This is how much shit I'm willing to take. This is what, but at this point it's a no from me, you know, and you have to take, take that before you before it becomes worse and worse and worse. Otherwise, you're kind of like your shifting baseline syndrome of normality changes with it as well. Yeah. I think as a movement, we need to come together and sort of say how many no's? How many times do we get ignored? How many COP uh, uh, promises broken? How many conferences wasted? How many new oil, um, oil and gas licenses granted? At what point do we just say no and say, okay, we're not going to ask you lot for anything anymore because you're incapable and we're going to start taking matters into our own hands. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. And I don't think that sabotage is the only way, but there needs to be this, like, I think more pragmatic awareness as well from those of us within the movement that quite frankly, it's, we've been doing this for 50 years and things are only getting worse and not because of some kind of like evil plot, but because of system dynamics.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. With, with that, that there there is, there is some thinking that is required on. Okay, what, what what would it mean to to not call for the government to do something, but to just take it in our own hands? Right. I mean, how would it look like? Yeah. And 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 what can be done there? Right. I mean. This, I think, will in general be useful also when things become really bad, right? To build these communities uh, that uh, can increase the resilience of a society. But, I mean, you've, I, I'm trying to volunteer at a place here that is kind of off-grid, you know, have the, has their own solar panels and filters their urine, you know, crazy zone fertilizer, that kind of stuff, you know? And, and, you know, there is something to be said to, to thinking about, okay, what skills are required there, right? And how can you make communities more resilient? And, but I, but I don't think, certainly not in, in I, I think in Western democracies that we could just build up an alternative structure of governing next to, you know, the, the, the normal representative democracy that we should say, okay, we just do this our own way because there is, there is something that we need to end on that level, right? this needs to be, it needs to be ended. Um, so, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not 100% sure how this would look like, but it certainly would require more people regardless, right? Mm-hmm. So so, so whatever whatever we are agreeing or disagreeing on, there needs to be a massive scale-up in terms of mobilization, right? And the mobilization needs to be diverse, right? It needs to take working people into account, right? Because they, I mean, historically also, just if you look at socialist tradition, they, at the point of production, they have a lot of power, right? They just stop working for for, uh, for the production of oil, right? Or, or these financial businesses. I mean, they can have... a a lot of impact, uh, or, you know, I mean, you saw this in France, right? And, and there, I mean, the French are fantastic of the protests, right? And garbage uh, piling up in Paris. You had this incredible industrial action, uh, but also there, the, the progress I think was, uh, was uh, not sufficient, um, but I agree with this diversity. And I also agree actually with, with, that the media is not, not really on our side. And we are doing some research on this. I mean, we, are, we have scraped some of the big newspapers in Germany and looked at the reporting on climate action groups, you know. And one thing that stands out is the Bild, Bildzeitung, and Bildzeitung, was just this tabloid, which has almost as many readers as the New York Times. I mean, it's a massive reach. Good God. Yeah. It's, 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 and, and, and you read the reporting, and it's so painful, you know. It's not, it doesn't mention the climate crisis. It only mentions the disruption. Uh, it puts them in a bad light. There's this one activist, who looks a bit like Shakira, you know, and then they call her climate Shakira, you know, and just talk about what she's doing and never mentioning the climate crisis. Right. Yeah. And so they really, yeah. you know, if we talk about who the climate movement polarizes, mm-hmm. guys, this is mediated by a terrible media ecosystem that is, that is increasing the hatred against these people. So, yeah, I agree. I agree on that front. and we have some data just to pack this up, or, but That's I think it's like- pretty in your face also.
1: Have you have you seen that data from um I think it's the University of Colorado they do they have this lab called MECCO and every month they do um a big update on sort of analyzing anglophone media from around the world to look at trends um yeah. and they did um they did a report 20 years ago on like bias is uh, around um reporting on anthropogenic, the anthropogenic nature of uh, climate change. Then they did an update to it as well uh, a couple of years ago. It's very, very, very good. Very good, their mm. stuff. And they're updating it all the time. Um, okay. And they're very, very nice. I interviewed one of their uh, researchers. They're really, they're really on it in terms of nice, nice, the medium nice. being part of the problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, oh, it's grim, isn't it? very, very grim, this situation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: But, I, but I, yeah, I, I mean, and it is, it is crazy also if you think about it, right? I mean, I'm 30 years now, right? I'm, I'm alive in the 2020s, 60 years, current emission until 1.5 degrees, right? So, so there is a, an insanity of being alive at this moment, you know, and in these trainings, I, I'm always reminded of a scene in Lord of the Rings. When I, when, I, when I talk to people and it's like Frodo who says I wish the ring had never come to me I wish yeah. none of this had happened and then Gandalf says so do all who live to see such time yeah. but that is not for them to decide all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us right? and it's you know it, it is what it is you know. and this is our project this is our generational project And we have to step up to that and, and be aware of our responsibility. And in that struggle actually also find meaning, you know, and happiness Mm -hmm. and realizing that there's suffering and suffering will get worse, but there's still a possibility for, you know, for community, for making things better. You know, there's, there's, it's never too late to do everything we can, right? As Ketan said once. So yeah, I think we have to come to terms with this and create hope and meaning and happiness through action, through struggle.
1: Yeah. Fabian, thank you so much. I think that's the the right note to end on for this conversation. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> My final question for you is who would you like to platform?
0: Yeah, I think there are many people, but just because this happened this week, I think Gianluca Grimalda would be a great Pick, you saw his story in the Guardian. I mean, he traveled I think at the beginning of this year to Papua New Guinea to kind of do research on, on these communities, how they're being affected by climate change, right? And then, I mean, he traveled by land and sea for 40,000 kilometers. And then his research was delayed because, you know, at some point he was held by ex-combatants from the Civil War and his research items were stolen and so on. And in general, these communities, are of course, very skeptical of a, of a white man uh, so there were some delays, but his institute, the King Institute for the World Economy, said, "Look, you have to be back by Monday. You know, otherwise you're fired." And he said, "Look, I'm. I, I can't, in good conscience, take a plane back and emit, I don't know, three or four gigatons of, greenhouse gas emissions, because I think it's it's not the right thing to do. We have to break with business as usual. And I've also promised these local communities, you know, to to not do it, to not take a flight back. And so I think he would be." Great to have because I think it reminds oneself that really courageous acts of individuals can be deeply inspiring and be part of this change process. Mm. And he, he probably also just has great stories to tell, you know, like what was the journey like? What, is the, what are these communities? How is the impact there? It reminds me about, about a bit about Alexander von Humboldt. There's this nice yeah. book, The Invention of Nature, which you read, it. it's fantastic. Beautiful. It's, it's <laughs> incredible. And I was like, oh, you know. I'd be curious to hear what he has to say, for sure, yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Fabian. This has just been wonderful.
0: Thank you very much, Renshin. Take care.
1: You too. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.